I want to take just a moment at the opening here to again express my appreciation to the elders here and the church here for the invitation to come and to speak to you on this subject. I'm always appreciative of the opportunity to go preach the gospel in any place, but especially I appreciate so much the invitation to speak on this subject matter. As I mentioned, as we started on Sunday, I've canceled my meetings for the year for some other things that I'm involved in, and had it been just a general subject matter, I probably would not have scheduled this, but when the elders mentioned the subject matter, I agreed to come because of the importance, I think, of this subject. And I appreciate so much the kind way in which you've listened, the kind comments and the feedback that you've given to the reception of the subject, and I appreciate so much your, your reception of it and how you have responded to the material, and I hope it is helpful somehow. I not only appreciate the way that you listened and the comments you made, but the hospitality that has been shown to me and my wife, Joan, that is, she has been with me, and if you had us into your home or taken us to a restaurant for a meal, we appreciate so much your kind hospitality. Tonight we want to continue and wind up our series that we've entitled, simply, Saving the Erring, Saving the Church, Our Families and Ourselves. That's what church discipline is about. We're ready for our fourth and final study that we entitled simply, How to Treat Those Fellowship and Does This Apply to Family? We're going to say a little more than just those two things. But let's introduce this idea of how do we treat those who have been disfellowshipped? And I want to begin by suggesting to you that there are extremes, at least two extremes, that I want us to focus upon as a backdrop to our study tonight. And that is, there is one extreme that says that we treat them like nothing is wrong and we go on just like we have before. In other words, someone has been disfellowshipped or someone has been withdrawn from and we treat them the next day and the next week and the next month and the next year just like nothing has ever happened. The other extreme is we treat them like they have some disease and we avoid them and ignore them totally. And neither one of those fit the scripture. I want to tell you that when discipline fails, it's often because members are disregarding the biblical instructions of how to treat those who have been disciplined. That's often the case. How the erring are treated, not only before, during, but also after they've been withdrawn from, can also make a world of difference in whether or not they ever decide to come back. And that's what we want to address and talk about this evening. The other question we're going to be talking about is, does this apply to family? So when we withdraw from someone, does this apply that I must act with reference to my own family? Is that the case? Withdrawing from the disorderly is never pleasant. In fact, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that it is a time of sadness. You ought rather to have mourned. It is a time for sadness, for crying, and for mourning. It is not pleasant at all. And that's especially true if it's someone in your family that's involved. It's a time for mourning. But the question is, do the requirements of the text still apply even though it's in my family? I know what it does if it involves your family, but does it involve my family? Do the requirements still apply? What if it's a brother of mine in the flesh? What if it's my sister, my son, or my daughter, or my parents? Can you still continue with the family activities? As we get together at Thanksgiving and Christmas and birthdays, etc., vacation, can we still do that? Can we associate at family gatherings? Is that okay when it's family? And could it be that if families continue in our, their association, even despite the withdrawal, 
Could it be that that's what brings them back is that continued association? Is that possible, as some have argued? We're going to explore those in our study tonight. Three things we're going to consider. We're going to talk about how do we treat the disorderly. Secondly, does it apply to family? And then thirdly, we want to raise a question, how do I deal with one that should have been disciplined but wasn't? That's an interesting question. Several of you already raised that question to me privately at the end of services. Let's start with this. How should we treat the disorderly? Someone who is walking disorderly and someone that, that finally now we have taken action so that we have withdrawn from them, how should we treat them? Let's lay out some principles. I'm going to lay out nine principles. And then we're going to take that, those principles and raise questions about those and put that to the test with several scenarios. Start with the principles. Here's the first. We must demonstrate that we're trying to save them. Now, Matthew chapter 18, we've alluded to already. This is the personal offense. And you go and tell him his fault, then you may gain your brother. You remember that? Then you take with you one or two more. That's still to gain your brother. And then you tell it to the church. That's for the purpose of gaining your brother. So I need to demonstrate I'm trying to save you. I'm not trying to drive you away. I'm trying to bring you to repentance. Secondly, treat him as a heathen and as a publican. Do you remember that in Matthew chapter 18? Tell it to the church, and if he neglects to hear them, then let him be unto thee as a heathen and as a publican. What does that mean? Let him be as one who is living a wicked life. Don't do anything to show approval of the way that they live. Let him be like a heathen and a publican. Let him know that he's viewed in the same class as one outside the fold of God. Thirdly, avoid him. Now, Romans 16 is not specifically talking about withdrawing, but here is one that is to be avoided who causes divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. Mark that one and avoid them. So there comes a time that I need to avoid one. That cannot mean that I totally avoid them, not even to speak to them, because I must continue to admonish him as a brother, 2 Thessalonians 3.15. M.R. Vincent said that word means to turn aside. I avoid them in the sense that I turn aside. That same word is used in other passages to be translated turned. So it means to turn aside. The American Standard says turn away from them. In other words, don't associate in a way and socialize with them so that I'm under their influence. So I'm to avoid them. Rule number four, do not associate. Remember, do not keep company. I talked about that at length last evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 3, and in verse 14, do not associate. That means to mix up together with. Do not socialize, not even to eat with them. And that's designed to bring them to shame. Rule number or principle number five. Do not treat him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, 2 Thessalonians 3.15. Don't ever make him feel like you're my enemy, I'm against you, but I'm working for you, I care about you, I love you, and I'm admonishing you to come to repentance. He's not to be forgotten. He's not to be treated like some unwanted relative. He's not to be viewed with as a bitter enemy, but as a brother in error that I care about. Rule number six. I'm to show love for him. That was indicated in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that now that this brother has repented, that fornicator of chapter 5 we talked about, now has repented, show love toward him, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 8. That's agape. 
That's the highest form of love. I'm seeking the best for him. I'm seeking the best for him. Treat him in the way that you show love and care. I want to show him I really do care about you. Without reading every word of Vine's quotation about this love, he makes the point that Christian love, when exercised toward brethren, toward men generally, is not an impulse from feeling and does not always run with the natural inclinations. In other words, this love is not a warm feeling you have for someone. It is seeking their best interest. You show I'm seeking your best interest. Number seven, be kind. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. The idea of being kind means that I'm sweet in the disposition, that I'm not harsh or hasty. I'm encouraging all that's gentle and good. What I'm learning from that is dealing with erring doesn't mean I have to be ugly and harsh. I can be kind and yet at the same time rebuke. You don't have to be ugly to rebuke. You can be kind and do the same thing. Principle number eight, seek to restore. When one is overtaken in a fault, you with your spirit, you restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You're trying to restore both before and after any action of withdrawing. You continue to look for opportunities wherein you can reach them with reference to their soul. And may I footnote here to say this, that quite often when we come to the point of withdrawing from someone, someone is bound to say, you know what, could we not do more before we ever reach that point? And if someone begins to be, think along that line, I think more needs to be done, then do more yourself. Maybe the elders feel like they've done all they can do, and now it's time to withdraw. And if you think more needs to be done, then do more yourself. Get busy and go talk to them. Reach out again. Go talk to them about their soul. We're seeking to restore. Principle number nine, demonstrate a willingness to forgive. From the very beginning, you should be demonstrating a, an uh, uh, an idea that I'm willing to forgive. I want to forgive you. That's the in implication of Matthew chapter 18. You go and talk to him to gain your brother. I want to gain you. I want you to repent. I want to forgive you of this. That's the implication of Matthew 18. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Don't rebuke them with this air of, of a spirit of, of arrogance that says, I'm glad that I have a reason to condemn you. I've been looking for that opportunity. Now let's take those nine principles. And those that are in this white box, those nine principles, let's put those to the test and begin to raise some questions about them. So I need to answer some questions about that. As I'm trying to determine how do I treat this brother or this sister, I need to raise the question, does my action violate any of those principles or any other Bible principle? She said, what I want to do is I want to associate with them. I want to have them in for Thanksgiving. Well, that violates rule number four, doesn't it? That ain't going to work. So what I really want to do is I want to tell them how much I despise them. Well, that violates the principle of trying to restore them and being kind. So put it to the test. Does what I want to do harmonize with these principles? Am I making sure that nothing violates my conscience, how I'm dealing with this person? Let's suppose some situations now. Let's just suppose you run into one that has been withdrawn from and you run into them at the grocery or maybe at the mall or one of the local stores. How do you do? How, how do you deal with them? Do you seek to avoid them? As they go down one aisle, do you try to go down a different aisle because I don't want to see them, I don't want to talk to them. 
Do I refuse to speak when they come down the aisle and they speak to me? Do I just turn my back and go the other direction? Do I try not to let them see me? How do I treat them? Well, let's look at these principles. I'm to treat him as a heathen and as a publican, but at the same time, while I don't socialize with him, I'm trying to seek to restore. I'm continuing to admonish him as a brother. No, I don't avoid him. I want to have an opportunity to talk to him about his soul if I can. Show him that I care. Suppose you're invited to a social setting where one who has been disciplined, withdrawn from, is present. What do you do? You go to somebody's house and sitting right there on the couch for, our, for the dinner that we're going to have and whatever party we're going to have or playing games we're going to have, sets one that was withdrawn from last year. Do you stay lest you hurt feelings? I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to hurt feelings. And I reckon I'll just stay and eat with them. Is that what you do? Or do you leave? How does that harmonize with these principles? I've been there. And I left. I've left. You follow the principles of the Scriptures. Suppose another circumstance. Suppose that has been disciplined is at a social gathering. Let's suppose you go to a potluck or a pitch-in, as some call it, and... Here this person shows up bringing their food. It's happened on a number of occasions. Those who are in charge, that's not the elders because that's not a work of the church. Should whoever may be in charge or kind of leading things, should they go ask them to leave? Or do you say, I don't want to hurt any feelings. Let's let them stay. Let's eat with them. Let's visit with them. And then maybe we talk to them later about their soul. Is that what you do? What if they showed up at your house? Would you welcome them in and say, come on in, let's have a meal together, let's sit down? Or would you say, I want to sit down and talk with you about your soul, let's open our Bibles, let's talk? How would you handle that? See, these rules tell us, don't they? We know the answer to the questions. What if one from whom we have withdrawn shows up at services? What if next Sunday they walk through the door? Do you ask them to leave? Do you tell them you need to leave? Do you try to show them that they're unwanted even though we don't ask them to leave? Do do you, when you come to sit down and you see they're next to you in the pew, you go to another pew because you don't want to be close to them? Or do you go to them and welcome them and tell them, I'm glad you came? Because, by the way, that's not socializing when we're sitting in the assembly, by the way. You welcome them. You hope they come, and you hope they come back. What if you have business dealings with someone who's been withdrawn from? Suppose it's someone who owns the store or the waitress serviceman that comes to fix your dryer or the sales clerk that checks you out. Is that socializing? Are you mixing together with, are you eating with them? No. Are you violating any of those principles when I buy the product from them or they service my car or whatever it may be? No. See, it doesn't take a Solomon to figure out how to take these principles and make application of those principles. Here's another scenario. Suppose the one that has been disciplined now repents. And then after they have shown their repentance, which seems to be genuine in all respects, they show up at a social setting. Maybe it's that potluck. Maybe it was at Thanksgiving. Or maybe it's a a party someone has at their house. How do I treat them now? 
Do I try to avoid them? Because I want to show my disgust for their sin. I want to show them how bad they were. I know they've repented, but I want to show how bad they were. Wasn't that the problem at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11? Wasn't that the problem? There was a device of Satan. Should I speak and be kind, but then try to distance myself? I don't want to be close to them. Or should I give them a wholehearted embrace and welcome them back to the family of God? I think we know the answer to that. It doesn't take a Solomon to figure out how to make application of those principles. Raise the question, does it apply to family? This is a touchy subject. Does it apply to family? We're going to look at four things, and I want you to watch for the four. We're going to talk about the standard that we should use to make, answer that question. And then we're going to talk about principles that come to play, the obligations that we have, then we're going to talk about the family. So watch for those four. Listen carefully. Let's talk about the standards. How do I answer this question? What, do, what principle do I use to answer the question, does this apply to family? And the answer is that I do not use emotions to answer that question. This is an emotional issue because family ties. Does it apply when it's in my family? And the answer to that is I do not use emotion to answer that. There are other issues that have emotions involved that are difficult, not because of the difficulty of the text, but because of human situations that cry out for favorable answers from the Word of God, like divorce and remarriage. We can show simply what the New Testament says in Matthew 19 and in verse 9. Someone is sure to say, well, if that's the case, that means then my daughter is living in adultery and I can't accept that. You know what they're using? They're using their emotions to answer that question. Here's the question of baptism. Mark 16, 16, baptism is essential. But someone says, I can't accept that because if that's true, that means my mother who was not baptized would be lost. They're using emotion to answer that question. We do the same thing on the, on the matter of church discipline. May I remind us that man is not at liberty to decide for himself. These are passages we can run through quickly. We know them well. It's not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. You remember that? We don't make up our own rules. God's ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah 55. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's smarter than we are. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death, the proverb writer would say. We must trust the Lord and lean not on our own understanding. Human emotion is not how we answer that. There are going to be some things in God's Word that may not make sense to us from human reasoning standpoint. I didn't say they didn't make sense. I said it may not make sense from human reasoning. For example, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Use mere human reasoning and see if that makes any sense to you. That must have been hard. In Ezra chapter 10, they were told to separate from their wives by whom they had children, by the way. Verse 44. Does that make any sense from a human standpoint? They're happily married. They're already in a marriage relationship. They're raising a family. They've got children by these wives. And God says, separate from them. And yet that's what God said. There's some things that may not make sense to human reasoning. Our standard must not be family. Often family becomes the standard. I've known of brethren who changed their position on divorce and remarriage to fit their family circumstance. Many of the preachers that have gone astray and now teaching error on divorce and remarriage, you look in their family and it so happens his doctrine fits the family circumstance. Well, why not convenient? The same thing is true with reference to other things. 
like one church or baptism because of my mother, because of my grandmother. The family becomes the standard. So we determine how the disorderly should be treated based upon my family. I've changed my mind, some have told me, with reference to church discipline. I don't think it applies to family. Well, isn't that convenient because your family is the one that's just been disciplined? The family becomes the standard. Matthew chapter 10, we must love the Lord. Luke chapter 14, we must love the Lord more than family. He that hates not father and mother, he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus would say. We must love God more than family. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, and I want to share with you the point in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus said, following the Lord doesn't bring family rifts. Nobody said that following the Lord means your family is all going to stay intact and everything's going to run smooth in the family. Here's what the Lord did say. Look at Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and the man's foes are they of his own household. How true that is. Following the Lord may bring some family rest. We'll mention again later in our study that we cannot be respecters of people. And what I want to suggest to you is that when we do not apply to our families, we are becoming respecters of people. The standard must be the Word of God. Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If I tell you tonight it doesn't apply to family, then I've got to show from the book of God that that's true. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 13, Paul said, According as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. What are you saying, Paul? I'm, I'm preaching and I'm teaching according as it is written of God. What's written of God is the question. We must abide within the doctrine of Christ. And may I suggest to you that if we have faith in the Lord, we'll accept what the Lord says because the Lord said it. Not because it fits what we want. It may not fit what I want. We're not going to accept it because it's my preconceived idea, because it may not be my preconceived idea. We're not going to accept it because that's what I've always believed, because it may not be what I've always believed. And we're not going to accept it because it fits the family circumstance, because it may not fit the family circumstance. We accept it because the Lord said it. That must be the standard. I said there are four principles we're going to look at. Here's the principles now. We're going four things. We're now looking at the principles. Let's lay down some principles that we already know so we can run through these quickly. Here's one principle. That we withdraw from those who are disorderly. That's a command of God. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. It's another principle. It has a twofold purpose. The purpose is not to be mean and to be ugly and to humiliate someone. The purpose is we're trying to save the erring, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. We're trying to make him ashamed of his sin. And secondly, maintain the purity of the church as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now listen to this carefully as I warn. Anything that we do that offsets the impact of withdrawal also offsets the purpose of it. Why not? If not, why not? In other words, if I'm doing something and behaving with my family in such a way that it offsets the impact of that withdrawal so that it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, I'm also offsetting the purpose of it. I'm not reaching their soul. Part of the disciplinary action is not to keep company with them. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
Those are principles. Keep those in the back of your mind. Thirdly, let's talk about obligations. What obligations do we have? Well, understand this principle. The Bible does not give contradictory commands. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. There's the command, for example, to work and provide for your family. I hear that cited quite frequently. God told me to work and provide for my family, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. All right, that's right. You're, you're correct about that. We're to provide for our own, 1 Timothy 5. Ephesians chapter 4, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I got that. You're right about that. But there's also a command to worship and not forsake the assembly. I know we're not talking about assembling tonight, but I'm illustrating the point. I want to suggest to you, you can obey both. That's not an either-or circumstance. And I think brethren sometimes look at those and think, you know what, this is, I can't obey both of them, and so I'm going to obey the work, the, the command to provide for my family, and I'm not going to obey the command not to forsake the assembly. I'm not worried about that because I've got to obey this one. They are not contradictory. You can obey both. And the same thing is true with some other commands. Let's list some family obligations that must be met. You cannot back off from these. For example, there's the husband and wife responsibility. There's the conjugal rights that must be performed, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 3 to 5. The only passage that I know of dealing with separation would be verse 5, and it says, Do not defraud one another except under these certain circumstances. 1 Peter 3 says he's to dwell with her according to understanding and knowledge. He's to dwell with her. That's a command of God. Here's another obligation. The minor child that's still under the parents' care, the parents have the responsibility to bring them up and train them in the nation of the Lord and provide for them, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. There's another obligation. We honor our parents and care for them. We don't leave the government to take care of our, our parents, but we take care of our parents when they get old and they need our care. And we have that obligation. God laid that upon the children. Aside 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 16, verse 16 said, If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve those who are widows indeed. Now stick that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. Well, I want to suggest to you this, that to refuse to associate it all in these cases would violate those commands. In other words, here's my aged parent that I need to take care of. I, I need to take them food. I need to provide food for them. Then I'm violating that command. Stick that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. Now let's spend a little time talking about the family. I said there are four things. The fourth would be the family. The text says, withdraw from every brother who is disorderly. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.6. That includes family and close friends. If not, why not? Now, if you tell me, you say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, brother, I, I, I don't agree with that. I don't think it applies to family. Why not? Someone else said, I don't think it applies to my closest friend. If not, why not? I feel like I'm obligated to why I think it does apply. You ought to feel obligated to tell me why it does not apply. If not, why not? The instructions to withdraw include not keeping company. Now, if social restrictions do not apply, does withdrawing apply at all? Let me expand. 
If your relative walks disorderly, do you want the church to withdraw from them? Now ponder that question for a moment. If your child is walking disorderly, do you want the church to withdraw from them? You say, well, no, I don't want to. You don't want us to do what the Lord told us to do? Remember, it's for the purpose of saving their soul. You don't want us to try to save them? Well, well, yeah, I guess I do want them to do that. Don't you want to be involved trying to save their soul? Would you want others that are not family to not keep company with them? Suppose your child is withdrawn from, suppose your grown child is withdrawn from, and you say, I want to associate with him. Do you want everybody else to do the same thing? Or do you want them to withhold that socializing? And why do you want them to do that? Are you wanting them to do something to save their soul? Listen to this carefully. There is no exception given to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. You might have missed that. So listen carefully now, and I'm going to say it again in case you missed it. There is no exception given in the text. There is none. Now, I admit there are exceptions in the Scripture. For example, God has a rule, no divorce, no divorce, no divorce. Four times Jesus, in essence, answered the question, can a man divorce his wife just for any reason? Now, he didn't say no, but he gave the reason for no, and he said, no, 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 you can't do that. But he gave an exception in verse 9, didn't he? So there are exceptions. We ought to obey civil law. Every command of man we should obey. But there is an exception. You ought to obey God rather than man. Acts 5. We're not to go to law with a brother. If anybody in here is scripturally divorced, you went to law if you were married to a Christian. There is an exception in there. So there are exceptions to the rules. But tell me what the exception is to 2 Thessalonians 3 and in 6. Tell me where it is. You see, family obligations are required. I recognize that we have passages that show that. Certain things are obligated. We'll come back to that. But it's a stretch of the imagination to say that grown children and siblings and aunts and uncles and nephews and nieces are exceptions. I say it's a stretch because there is no passage showing that's an exception. Oh, no, I associate with him because he's my uncle. See, we're family. Where is that exception in the Scriptures? Where is that exception? Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. I know this is not New Testament church discipline. I got that. I got that. I understand that. But turn with me to Deuteronomy 13. In the Old Testament, those who led others to commit idolatry were to be stoned to death. And family was not exempt. Family was not exempt. We don't have time to read all 11 verses, but let's go to, to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and in verse 6. If your brother or the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is your own soul secretly entices you, say, let us go serve other gods. What's to be done? You are, uh, notice down at verse 9, you shall surely kill him. Even if it's your son or your daughter, it's someone in your family, that is not an exception. God didn't look at family as much of an exception. And I wonder, what event could we cite and say, this changes the instructions of 2 Thessalonians 3? Wedding reception? Well, see, this is different. We're having a wedding, and so we're going to socialize with them. 
That's the exception. Where? Holiday gathering because it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas. Family reunion, that's the exception. Birthday celebration. You see, when you can find those in a scripture, the very next verse is going to have anything I want to put there. My golf game, horseback riding, going and playing whatever games we want. We'll do whatever. I'll find it in the very next verse where you find those, every one of them. It's going to be there. Let's harmonize some things. There is the command to withdraw from those who are disorderly. That includes not keeping company. We recognize that. But we have continued close association as husband and wife because of an obligation. I cite the passage, 1 Corinthians 7. The parent has an obligation to the minor child. Ephesians 6 would obligate us there. We have an obligation to care for our aged parents. 1 Timothy 5 would obligate us there. There are passages. But I want to tell you, there is no requirement to have a continued close association with a grown child who's been disciplined. Where is the passage? Let that one sink in for a moment. Where is the passage? You won't find it. And where is the passage that says, because this is a sibling of mine and we grew up together, that is the exception and I've got to continue that relationship. A close relationship there, even though they've been withdrawn from. Or another relative for that matter. If it doesn't apply to family, where does it stop? Someone said, I've always thought it didn't apply to family. Okay, let's just let's follow that rule. Let's buy your rule. Where does it stop? Stop with aunts? They need to be included too. They're family, aren't they? What about uncles? What about cousins? That's family. What about second cousins? What about third cousins once removed? Where do we stop? And on we go. And what about that distant relative? I think that's the third cousin on my mother's side on the back side of the tree. I believe that's who that is. Aren't they included? And what about that close friend? Aren't they exceptions because there's a friend sticking closer than a brother? There's a principal there. Aren't there friends closer than family sometimes? I ask the question, where does it stop? Let's go back to this principle, there is to be no respecter of persons. God is not a respecter of persons, Romans chapter 2, James 2. We're not to be a respecter of people. And if I refuse to associate with your relative because they've been disciplined, but I continue to associate with my relative who has been disciplined, am I not a respecter of persons? See, I want to bring your family to repentance. I'm not worried about mine. I'm a respecter of persons. Listen to this very carefully. Family and close friends will have the greatest impact. Family and close friends will have the greatest impact. You see, not keeping company, mixing up together with, is designed to put pressure on that he might be ashamed that he brings him to repentance. And I want to suggest to you that who is going to have the greatest impact? Those that are closest to the one withdrawn from are those that, with whom they have very little association at all. In case you missed that point, let me rephrase that another way. Here is somebody that's, that has a close-knit family, and they have a close-knit uh, group of friends. And the church here withdraws from them, but here is somebody they hardly ever spend any time with, says, I can't spend any time with you anymore. We can't, we can't socialize. That won't mean a thing. But you guarantee that those who are the closest when they quit having that association, it's going to have an impact. 
when parents and children and siblings and close friends refuse to keep company, that will have an impact. You can bet it will. They'll have the greatest impact of all. And may I suggest to you there's likely going to be a time in your life, if it hadn't already come, it has already come in my family, and many of you have mentioned it's come in your family already. But if it hadn't, there's likely to be a time when you're going to have to make a decision about someone in your family. They're not living as they should, and they've been disciplined. Let me suggest some things to you. Should you decide that you can associate and socialize with them? You said, I've made that commitment. I'm going to continue on with that. I know we shouldn't keep company, but it's family, and I'm going to continue to do that. Should you do that, you're practicing something that I could not preach by faith that it's okay. I can't preach it by faith because I can't prove it by the book of God. And if you can't prove it by the book and the chapter and the verse, you can't preach it by faith. So you say, you want me to tell you you're okay? I can't tell you that. These elders can't tell you that. Because they can't preach it by faith. Should you decide, I'm going to do that, do not put others in a compromising position. I've known of families that say, I, I can't do this to my child, my, my grown child. I can't do that. And we're going to have them in for birthdays and Christmas and, and Thanksgiving. We're going to do that. All right, you go ahead and do that. But when you invite me over for a meal, don't you have that person there. Or just don't invite me because you just put me in a compromising circumstance. Don't do others that way. And should you decide to continue to associate, you may be the very person that keeps them from returning to the Lord. Not the one who brought them back. You may be the very one that kept them from turning to the Lord. And that's an important point. So important, I want you to hear that one again. If you continue to associate with your family that's been disciplined, you may be the very one that keeps them from coming back to the Lord. You may be the very one. Finally, let's come to the third section of our study. Several of you have asked Sunday night and Monday night, would I deal with this? And so here we go. The question is, how do I deal with one who should have been disciplined? And I must say the Bible doesn't directly address that, but I think it addresses it in principle. So here's the question, what about a wayward Christian who was not withdrawn from, though they should have been? Should we not socialize or should I personally withdraw from them? Should I take some action myself when action should have been taken? Well, that comes in several scenarios. Here, let me pose some that I've dealt with personally. Here's a person, for example, that moves away. They were faithful. They move away, say, from Eastside. Move away from Athens. Maybe they move off to Texas. And they place membership with a church in another state, and they're faithful for a little while, and then they become unfaithful while they're out there in Texas. And the church there didn't deal with them as they should. Maybe the church is weak. I don't know what's going on there, but they didn't withdraw from them. That person then moves back to Athens and maybe doesn't place membership because the elders would be asking questions about their faithfulness, but... They start calling their old friends and mingling and they visit services and when you have a potluck they want to be there and they want to come to your gatherings, etc. And so they start mingling and they want to socialize. How do I treat him? Because I know he's unfaithful, not even going to church all the time. And I know he's drinking some and I know there's other things going on. Maybe he's committed fornication. What do you do? How do you deal with that? Here's another scenario I've also dealt with. 
Here's a family member, a good friend, who worships with a church that just doesn't practice discipline. And they become unfaithful. They should have been withdrawn from, but they weren't. Can I continue to associate with them and act like everything's okay? Well, let's go back to some Bible principles. There is a principle of how to treat the erring. Now, I can't find those scenarios in the Scriptures. I don't find in 1 Corinthians 5, this is what was going on. 2 Thessalonians 3, this is exactly what was going on, or another passage for that matter where I find those scenarios. But here's what I do find. I find a principle of how to treat those who are erring. 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3. I'm not saying that those churches can now go back years later and say, I'm going to withdraw from him when he left that church three years ago. I'm not interested in that right now. What I'm interested in and what I am saying that as an individual, I can practice not keeping company with a wayward. Because God said that's a principle that brings them back. That's a principle that's designed to bring them to repentance. That's a principle that's to make them ashamed, 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 14. To do otherwise seems to work against the efforts to reach the erring. Here's one that's unfaithful and living ungodly, and I'm continuing to associate with them. But here's another one that we did withdraw from, and I'm not associating with them. Why am I not associating? I'm trying to bring them to repentance. I don't want to bring him to repentance too. It would seem to apply. To think socializing will help. And that's been the argument. I hear that argument all the time. I'm going to socialize with them. I'm going to continue to have this relationship because I think that will bring them back. Seems to contradict everything I find in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3. So what have we seen in our study tonight? Well, those are not the easiest questions to answer. But how should I treat the disorderly? How should I treat those who are wayward? How should I treat those who have been withdrawn from? There are biblical principles that are not hard to figure out. How do I put that to the test and how do I apply that? Does it apply to family? Yes, it does. If not, why not? How should I treat one who should have been disciplined? I'm going to treat them as if they were because they should have been. They're not living godly. They're living ungodly. And I want them to know that they're living ungodly. And that they should come to repentance. And they should make the changes in their life. I hope this series somehow has been helpful to you. There's more that could be said. There's more questions could be answered. And I'm sure somebody will say, but you didn't deal with, and you're right, I didn't. And if I would be here for a long time. I didn't deal with everything. We can't. But hopefully this series has been helpful to you as we talk about church discipline. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins and acknowledge your faith and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?